tonight we're going to be particularly talking about when Christians use this word gospel, which Christians love to throw around words without defining them sometimes. I don't know if you've been around Christians very much, but that happens a lot. And I want to make sure we understand that. And particularly, I want to expand your idea of the gospel. Uh, if, if you're like me, I mean, I didn't really get exposed to the idea of the gospel or even the idea of a relationship, that you could have a relationship with God through Jesus. That was brand new to me in ninth grade when I first heard that, and it kind of freaked me out, honestly. I grew up in a church tradition where that really wasn't the way we talked, and so it just seemed kind of weird and touchy-feely. Um, it also fit my sort of Midwestern upbringing, a very non-emotive kind of world, and I'd already sort of decided that life was better if I didn't feel things. Uh, so the idea that I could have a relationship with God, like all that stuff just like pushed buttons I didn't want pushed in so many different ways. But eventually I became convinced that that is what the Bible talks about and I would have to deal with that. Um, for, for all of us, um, if you want to understand what Christianity is about, you need to understand the idea of relationship, that God created us not just to be his little worker bees and to run around and, and sort of you know, make him feel better about himself um, or make his people feel better about themselves like their team is winning. Uh, he really calls us first and foremost into relationship with him, and everything else flows out of that. Now, for a lot of people, when they hear the word gospel, or even if they've heard a phrase like preach the gospel or share the gospel with somebody, usually we like to talk about sharing the gospel because we're in sort of this pluralist culture where we don't really want to preach at people. That just seems unkind or pushy. So we talk about sharing the gospel. And usually what people mean by that is um, telling you some stuff and then inviting you to pray a prayer. And, and I would submit to you that that is kind of a, a woefully small idea of what the Bible means by gospel. And so we're going to talk about that tonight, particularly the idea that the gospel isn't just, isn't just sort of a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel is not just about what happens when you die. So I know my upbringing, that's what I always heard. The reason the gospel matters is because one day you're going to die, and you better know what's going to happen when you die. But that is such a trivialization of the idea of the gospel in the Bible. The Bible talks about the gospel not just as news, but as something that drives and should drive the way you think and live what you find beautiful, what breaks your heart, what you long for. The gospel connects to all of that stuff because God is connected to all that stuff. And ultimately, the gospel that Christianity proclaims is God's gospel. But I would submit to you that there are lots of competing ideas and visions of the good life. I think every one of us is, is animated in some, some way by a vision of the good life that may or may not correspond to what God says he made us for. Uh, I, I was talking to, to some of the students a little earlier tonight about in our, um, in our culture, you know, we have this idea that the most important things and the most real things are spontaneous things. We live in a culture that very much celebrates romanticism, whether you realize this or not. And the idea is that um, the most important things are spontaneous experiences. And I, I think one of the great ways to get at this is uh, those MasterCard commercials where they talk about how, you know, you, know you, you can buy tickets to the baseball game, you know, how many dollars it is, and then you can get hot dogs and 
But then, you know, having an afternoon with your son is priceless. But of course, the, the deeper, the subtext of those commercials is that the most important things are experiences, and experiences require spontaneity, and so you're going to have to have a credit card. Like, you, heaven forbid that you actually plan something meaningful. Heaven forbid that you actually consider how to love somebody. Love should be just obvious and natural and easy, especially if you find your soulmate who just sort of draws love out of you naturally. We have these kind of ideas, and so we think that if things are spontaneous, they're real. And it's crazy, like, how many times you can be deceived by love at first sight and by that sort of initial attraction. We still harbor and long for a kind of love that will make loving easy, some, some other person or something. And, and so there's, there's something there that's driving us, some vision of the good life. And, and it's basically this, that what's real is what's spontaneous and what feels really strong and powerfully. Of course, when you get into what the Bible says about love, you find that it doesn't talk about love that way. Not that the Bible is against romance and strong feelings. Like I mentioned last week, when Adam first sees Eve, he says, wow. It's there in the Hebrew. I know it doesn't make it into the English translations, but he says, wow, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is one who is like me and yet unlike me. He breaks out into poetry. In the Bible, the only record of pre-sin entering the world speech that we have is poetry, right? So Christianity is not sort of, you know, proclaim a vision of the world that is devoid of feeling and beauty and poetry, music, those sorts of things, right? And yet it also doesn't say that feelings and emotions are it. The question that I want all of us to think about tonight is, what is animating you? What vision of the good life drives you? What, where, where is your hope? What do you use to console yourself when you're down? Those are all ways of trying to get at what is your ultimate allegiance and what do you ultimately find so beautiful that you would sacrifice other things, maybe everything, for it. Now, if you consider yourself a Christian, maybe the way to ask it is this. What, what thing could God take away from your life or send into your life that would make you seriously consider rejecting him. Is there something that you can think of that you would say, you know, if God sent this, I'm not sure I would still want to follow him or know him. Uh, a friend of mine one time was talking, talking to a middle school girl about Christianity, and she was coming, and she's like, you know, I, you know, I know all this stuff about God, and I love God, and, you know, but, but I don't have any dates. Like, nobody, nobody ever asked me out. You know, and, and it was like, you can, you can smile at that, laugh at that, but, you know, I, I, the longer and longer that that issue goes on, potentially, particularly if you say that that is the non-negotiable, what I'm saying is something in your life is ultimate. Something is non-negotiable. And what Christianity says is if it's not God, then you're worshiping something that's not worthy of worship. And it's probably a good thing. That's the tricky stuff with this. It's usually good things that we put our hope in, but we often turn these good things into ultimate, absolute things. And that's when all 
kind of all hell breaks loose in lots of ways in our life. So the question is, you know, what is driving us in our relationships? And I, and, and I would say that um, this issue of relationships is really in a lot of ways where the rubber meets the road. Uh, I have a friend, Steve Garber. He's actually coming later this uh, spring to come do a little week on vocation and calling. Have you seen this? I don't know if they've publicized it very much yet. He's, he's great. And uh, we're going to be promoting that a lot when it comes up. University Ministries is bringing, bringing him in. Um, I think the world of Steve. He, says, he said this to me one time, and, and I think he's right, that really where the rubber meets the road, if you want to know whether somebody, where Christianity has really entered deeply into their life, here's, the, here's the, the, really the criteria, the question to ask. Does God have a right to tell them what to do with their body? You see, because we live in a culture that says you're free to do what you want with your body. And yet, of course, the Bible comes and says, no, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You couldn't have a more, you know, violent collision between the world that we live in, the thoughts that are are there in our hearts, and what God says about what we were made for. And it's not that God is just wanting to be a, a sort of a sourpuss or a killjoy. It's that he knows this is what you were made for. God loves his people, and he wants them to live the way he made them to live. That's what freedom is ultimately all about. But we live in a culture that tells us this ultimately about relationships, that relationships are are really for us and what we can get from them. Now, into that kind of idea that we basically like as good consumers, because we all live in this consumer culture that squeezes us, we pursue relationships that way too, and yet we hate it. This is the great dilemma. We know that we pursue relationships um, for what they can bring us, how they can benefit us. We don't want to be that way. We recognize that's a problem, and we probably also secretly harbor deep fears that that's the way other people think about us. This guy, David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times, I really love David Brooks, wrote a book years ago called Bobos in Paradise about bourgeois bohemians um, and you are them, whether you realize it or not. But he says that for, for you know, people under 40 in our, in our world, in our Western culture, life is a continual aptitude test. That you're constantly being auditioned. Now, some of you know the pressure of auditioning. Like when, when you know it's an audition. But he says you actually are being auditioned all the time. And you know it. That you're only worth what you can produce And you're only as good as the last thing that you produced. And there's something so corrosive about that. We hate it, but we don't know how to get out of it. It's it's in the air that we breathe. Well, into that, I want to bring this this scripture. If you look uh, back on your announcement sheet, this is from the Apostle Paul, his letter to the Corinthians, we call it Second Corinthians, though actually it's not exactly the second, it's maybe the third or fourth uh, letter that he wrote to them. Um, and, and he writes about this issue. Now I'm not going to explain every verse in this, but I want to give you this whole little section for context. But listen to how he's talking about what drives you, what animates you, and think about the way he talks about God's love, not just as something for when you die, but it's for something right now that has everything to do with your relationships. Here's, here's the word of the Lord. 
Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. I would say mankind. It's not women aren't um, left out of that. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, all of that, I I can't go into all the details. It's a little complicated. His thought is a little hard to follow there. Suffice to say this. He's writing to people, and there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of conflict. This is a church where they're tolerating, like, sexual stuff that is even shocking to people who aren't Christians, like disgusting things, right? And he's writing to them. He's also writing to a church that has begun to have its doubts about whether he really knows what he's talking about and is really somebody to be listening to. And so he's writing. You kind of can get that a little bit, reading from the lines here, that there's a, a conflict, there's some tension going on here, but he's trying to get them to understand that he cares about them. And then he says this in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together and then we'll dig into this a little more. Lord, we do thank you that there is a love that will not let us go. We thank you that there is a love that can compel us to live differently. Because, Lord, if we're honest, we all know that we need to be changed. And we don't have the power. Teach us about your love that can compel us to live differently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, I don't know if you like Don Miller's books. I I like Don Miller's books. His book, Searching for God Knows What, I really enjoy. He's got this great illustration in there where he talks about being, uh, you know, I guess he was probably in elementary, maybe middle school, where he was um, in this values clarification class. Uh, you, ever been, you ever been through that? Values clarification? They basically proposed this scenario to help all the students sort of clarify what their real values are, or what we would say, what is really ultimate to you. And they proposed this situation, which is, it's kind of eerie that it seems like particularly relevant this week. Um, suppose you're on a ship and it 
sinks and you've got to get in a lifeboat and the problem is the lifeboat's not big enough uh, to hold everybody. And so somebody has to get kicked out of the lifeboat or the thing's going to sink and everybody's going to die. So he says, imagine, you know, there's a lawyer and a young mother and a child, a doctor, you know, a major league baseball player, all these people, and each of them has to make the case for why they should stay in the lifeboat. And, and he talks about sort of, that was the first time he started thinking about like, well, what about me? Like, why should I be in the lifeboat? And the more he thought about it, he says, and I see this all the time, I think everybody around is trying to make the case, whether explicitly or not, about why I should get to stay in the lifeboat. Now, there are probably some of you that sort of, you know, maybe the chief motivation in your life is shame, and you'd be like, well, of course I don't belong in the lifeboat. Like, nobody would ever want me in the lifeboat. That's a little different issue. We talk about that, too, hopefully as the semester progresses. But in a lot of ways, so many of us are trying to convince other people that we belong in the lifeboat. Or, you know, there's a, there's a movie. I really don't like this movie at all, but it's kind of a, de- a depressing in this regard. Did you ever see this movie, The Weatherman? It's one of those Nicolas Cage movies that's really not a very good movie. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you're a big Nicolas Cage movie, you know. Ra- after Raising Arizona, like, you know, what happened? Actually, Matchstick Man's a co- cool movie. But this one, The Weatherman, he's this, he's this guy, right, who basically has this opportunity to hopefully maybe, you know, move to New York from the Midwest and become like the guy like on Good Morning America or something, right? And yet in the process of pursuing this dream, his whole family falls apart because he's so driven by this goal and this dream. And eventually at the end of the movie, his family has fallen apart, um, his wife's left him, his kids, you know, he's disconnected from them, but he makes it, he gets the job. And, and you know, to me like the most depressing movies are the movies that think that they're ending in a positive way and yet it's still so empty. And here's what happens. He finally gets to, to be in the Macy's Day Parade, right? The Macy's Parade. And, and here's it. He, gets, he's, he says, you know, I didn't get to lead the parade, but I got to be right behind the firemen and right in front of Barney. And that's good enough for me. <laughs> now, and you just think, that's it? Like, that's what, but they're literally like, that's what people, they live for this. Like, you set your sights on a goal. You hopefully it's an attainable one so that you won't be too disappointed. And then you're trying to convince everybody that I belong. Well, I, I'm not as good as the firemen, but I be, like I'm right behind the firemen. And this was pretty close to after 9-11, so nobody would think that they go in front of the New York firemen. But I'm right behind them. I'm certainly in front of Barney, you know. And feel pretty good about yourself. And you watch this movie and you're like, yeah, but his whole family fell apart. He failed every relationship that he was in, but he gets to be in the parade in front of Barney. And he's trying to convince himself that that's enough. But you know that that's not enough, right? Something is driving us, and it's killing our relationships. Because at some point, you will get in your life to a point where you have to do a cost-benefit analysis of your relationships. And we don't want to think that that's going to happen, but it will happen. Some relationships that you're in, you will get to a point where you say, is it really worth it? The aggravation, the disappointment, the heartache, the time that this is causing me to be away from things or people that I'd rather be with. At some point, we all go through this kind of cost-benefit analysis with regard to our relationships, and then we kind of hate that about ourselves, and then that question starts to 
sort of pop into our mind, what if other people are doing that about me? It's sort of like gossip, right? It's not just that when you're gossiping with a group of, of friends that it's, um, I mean, it's bad enough that you're gossiping. But here's the reason gossip is so corrosive in relationships. Because pretty soon you begin to wonder, what do they talk about when I'm not here? And you become radically insecure in all your relationships. When you're gossiping, you feel powerful. It's one of the attractions. one of the reasons you do it. You gather with people, you feel powerful. But then you begin to wonder, well, what if I'm not in the circle and they're talking about me? Right? We have this deep longing and need for relationships, and yet we also are so committed to staying safe. And the two bump up against each other all the time. We're in a mess. I mean, nobody likes to be auditioned, but the fact is we've all experienced it. You know, one of the most you know, grievous things to me, um, I'm not sure when your parents were born, but in 1975, Ann Landers, do, do you guys know who Ann Landers was? She's, she's passed away now. Ann Landers used to write a column in newspapers about relationship advice and family advice and etiquette and all those sorts of things. In 1975, she asked this question. Asked this question of parents. If you had to do it all over again, would you still have children? And you're like, gosh, why would she ask that question? Well, she did. 50,000 people responded, which means they sent letters. There was no internet, no you know, easy. It was, was, they had to write a letter, put a stamp on it, send it to her. 50,000 people did that. 70%, 70% of them in 1975 said no. Do you think their children knew that? When were you born? When were your parents born? Right? Why? I mean, you know, you didn't live through the 70s like I did. The 70s were known as the me decade. All about me. As a matter of fact, in 1979, there was a movie, Meryl Streep's, one of her you know, famous movies, Kramer versus Kramer. Anybody seen this movie? It's all about a woman who decides that she needs to leave her husband and her little boy so that she can find herself. And again, it's, it's such a depressing movie because it's seen as sort of this great, um, brave, you know, going out into like this uncertain future to find herself. There's this one point in the movie where she says this to her eight-year-old little boy. She says this, I have, grown, I have gone away because, she writes a little letter and leaves it for him, right? I've gone away because I must find some interesting things to do for myself in the world. Everybody has to, and so do I. Being your mommy was one thing, but there are other things. Like, now, see, we live in a, in a little different culture where people are afraid to say that kind of stuff out loud. Well, I'm sure there's people in this room who've heard those kinds of things, actually. Honestly, I, I remember I had a student years ago, you know, who parents had split up, there was an abusive situation, and the mom basically had to decide whether she was going to stay with her boyfriend or put her kids in foster care. She chose foster care. You know? This is the broken world that we live in, right? No wonder, no wonder we're afraid of relationships. Because, you know, even if that's not your story, I, I suspect you know somebody who that's their story. And it has this effect of, of, of making everybody just so fearful. It seems that there's no solid 
secure relationships. I mean, it, it drives us crazy. You know, in so many ways, we think our friends will always be there for us. And I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people where, you know, a guy and a girl are friends, and then there's maybe some romantic interest, and they're terrified to explore it because they might lose the friendship. Because if you lose a friend, what else do you have? It's said, you know, that in traditional cultures, your family is the most important relationship. In the modern world, in sort of the Kramer versus Kramer Ann Landers, 1975 world, the most important relationship was your lover. In our day, we know, particularly after people that lived through the 70s like that, we know that lovers leave and parents get divorced. And so we put our hope in our friends. But your friends can't bear the weight, even if they're great friends. So we're in a mess. We're in a mess. Relationships are dangerous and uncertain. They're fragile. And that's what we've got, right? You can never be the kind of friend you want to be. And you hate that about yourself. But you don't know how to be different. One of my favorite songs, I mean, I, I said I hate this song, but I also love the way this song brings us out so powerfully. It's a Patty Griffin song from her Flaming Red record called Christina, maybe you don't know that record, it's an amazing record. Um, Christina, she wrote this song about Christina Onassis, who's the daughter of, you know, the guy, that, the Greek shipping magnet, um, what was his name? I forget. But he married, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, that's why she's Onassis, right? So at one, one, when this girl came of age, um, she was the richest girl in the world. And yet she didn't live very long. Her life was filled with broken you know, really dysfunctional relationships, drug abuse, and she finally died. And um, Patty Griffin writes this song about her, like, what would it be like? How would you ever know that somebody loved you for you if you're the richest girl in the world? Right? I mean, at one point, you can fantasize, like, boy, I wish, you know, that I had all this money or fame or talent or, you know, intelligence, whatever. But then the more you think about it, you're like, yeah, but then how do I know that people want me for me? I always say, you know, I knew that if somebody married me and took my last name, then I would know they really loved me. <laughs> but not all of you have a name like Twit, so you don't know. You've got to find some other criteria. Well, Patty Griffin, she writes in this song, If you had the real thing, how could you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. And all you need is for that question to be brought up. And all of a sudden, like... Well, how do I know? Right? Isn't that what freshman seminar was about? I, I feel like, you know, that one song lyric is all that freshman seminar is about. How do you know? How do you know? If you had the real thing, how could you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. That's the mess. <laughs> but this is so far removed from what the Bible says relationships can be about. How can the Christian community demonstrate to the world that there is a different way to live? How can we even begin to live it and believe it ourselves? Not knowing where you're at in that, you're in one of those categories. Either you say, well, I'm trying to follow Jesus or I'm not sure I want to follow Jesus. doesn't matter. The Christian church has a vital role to play to give evidence and bear testimony by the way they live and the way they love that there is a different way to live. Where does that come from? And the answer is here in our text. 
The only way that we can have relationships that begin to approach what God designed relationships for is if we have something bigger than the relationships. We have something bigger than relationships that benefit us. Only if we're loved by someone who loves me for more than what I can bring to the table can you ever have the sign of security that you need to actually live in good relationships with anybody else. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. The love of Christ is not just, like I say, about what happens when you die. I think the tragedy is for so many people that would say they're Christians, they're basically trying to sort of wring out every little drop of life from just belief that something's going to happen when I die, but there's no sense that the love of God matters to me now and, and is concerned with how I live and how I think and how I feel now. But Paul here gives testimony to something very different when he says that the love of Christ compels me. Do you know what it means to be compelled by the love of Christ. You may say, well, you know, I grew up in church and I'm a Christian and I believe Jesus raised from the dead and I believe, you know, that he died for sinners. I believe he's going to come back one day to judge the living and the dead. I believe all that stuff. Yes, but does the love of Christ compel you? What would that look like even for you to be compelled by the love of Christ, by it, for it to change even the way you think about yourself and about your relationships. Because Paul says, look in verse 16, from now on I regard no one from a worldly point of view, though I once regarded Christ in this way, I do so, so long, no longer. What does he mean a worldly point of view? And I think what he's talking about here is saying, I used to think about what I could get, but I don't do that anymore. Why? Because I've already gotten everything I need. See, here's the thing. It's just like, uh, you know, I've got three children. And I remember when my oldest, Cooper, was, was small. And then he had his little brother, Isaac. And um, I don't know if this was proper to teach to my kids, but I did. And it makes a good illustration. So I'll tell you what I told him. I remember one time, like, Isaac, the littler one, had grabbed something from Cooper. And Cooper wanted it back. And he grabbed it back, and of course, Isaac then like shrieked and screamed and went ballistic, right? And I said, Cooper, you know, I'll tell you something about babies. They don't hold on to anything for very long. As a matter of fact, I don't care what they're holding on to. It could be a bottle. Could be, I don't care what it is. If you hold up like something else and shake it in front of them, they will drop the thing they're holding and grab that. Whether it's a good idea, whether the thing they have is better or not, doesn't matter if there's something else. So all you got to do, don't grab it back from him. He'll just scream at you. Just pick up something else, shake it in front of him. Now, I don't know if I was teaching, you know, my four-year-old how to manipulate my two-year-old. But there, there really is something about that. In other words, there is no way, as broken as relationships are, there's no way that you can quit caring about them, quit depending upon them, no matter how broken they are, no matter how they disappoint you, unless you've got something else more solid. And that's what Christianity is talking about. In other words, there's no way that I can look at other people and serve them when I'm so needy. But what Christianity says is that the love of Christ comes not just to settle what happens when you die, but even right now, fill your heart with love and security that allows you to say, I don't have to get all of the joy 
now, in this moment, from this relationship. Because God is filling me in a way that, yes, I want this person to like me. I want this relationship to be a good relationship, but I don't have to have, I don't have to have this relationship be everything to me. In other words, I don't have to have this person that completes me because God loves in a way that no human, even a great relationship, can. I often say when I do weddings, it's important to understand that um, God created marriage to teach us about his love. Therefore, when we do weddings, we understand that weddings are a signpost pointing us to God's love. And that's good news for people who are married. Because it doesn't take very long for them to realize that as much as I thought this was going to be it, it's still not it. It's also good news for people who aren't married and want to be to know that if this is a signpost, you can still have ultimate satisfaction even if you never marry. Now, I know that's Oh, that's kind of crazy. And I know, you know, like we're going to have this discussion group, and one of the most common questions asked by single people is, why isn't there sex in heaven? Why aren't people going to be married in heaven? And I say, well, the people that tend to ask that question are people who've never had sex. I, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. People that have had sex know that it's not heaven. It's not the ultimate. Right? I won't ask for a show of hands. But, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. I see the, the married people nodding. I, and I, I won't make judgments about the other people that are nodding. Uh, no, I'm teasing. I'm, every, when you talk about something like that, it's about using, like, using the word masturbation. Everybody just kind of looks here like, please don't let him catch my eye. And don't worry, we're going to talk about sexual addiction and pornography and all that stuff as this semester progresses. So be prepared. Um, so here's the thing. Like, the love of Christ comes in and says that... You've already gotten what you need. Here's the thing. You try to get all this life and this love from these other things, and you're never going to be able like, I can't just say to you, you know, quit putting your hope in your talent unless you've got something else to hope in. You can't let go of it. You can't unless you believe that God has really loved you the way you need to be loved. You have to get that love from other people. So here's what the Bible says. The love of God, the love of God is the love that will never let you go. And it's the love that can be this ultimate security under you because it's the only love that you don't have to qualify for. It's the love that you know will never leave you because it's not a love that you can earn. Therefore, it's not a love that you can lose by screwing up or by, not failing, the, or by failing the aptitude test. Have you ever been in a relationship where you felt like you were walking on pins and needles? Like, if I say the wrong thing, if I don't call this girl up within the next hour, or I do call her and I've made the wrong decision, the relationship is over. What kind of relationship is that? But you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I honestly, like, listening to my younger sister talk about her boyfriends in high school is one of the things that just scared me to death about being in relationships. Because I would be like, well, how was the stinking boy to know that he was supposed to do this and not do that or do this and not do that? Like, there's no way nobody gives you a manual. You don't know what to do, right? And so, gosh, I just don't want to even enter into that because I'm bound to screw up. And here's, here's the thing that you need to understand about the love of Christ. 
The love of Christ is not this fickle thing that's dependent upon you staying right in the center of God's will. Gosh, I hate that phrase. The Bible nowhere talks about the importance of you staying right in the center of God's will. Nowhere says that. And for perfectionists, that'll just kill you. Particularly if you start applying that to relationships. Like, I've got to stay right in the perfect center of God's will, but I don't know what it is. What am I supposed to do? Right? Well, here's the thing. Rest in Jesus. And here's how you rest. Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Give me five more minutes and we'll explain this, and then I'm going to see if there's, there's any questions or anything you want me to clarify. A lot of Christians are confused because they think that forgiveness and righteousness are the same thing. I would say most people I know that are Christians believe that what Jesus does is he dies, takes the punishment that you deserve, and gives you a fresh start. But that's not what the gospel is. There's a big difference between forgiveness and righteousness. Jesus said that if you want to have a relationship with God, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength from the moment you're born to the moment you die. And I don't care how many tries and fresh starts you get. You're never going to achieve that. So you can be forgiven all you want, but you'll never qualify for the love of God because you'll never love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So here's the good news of the gospel because that word literally means good news. And here's what it is. Jesus lived the death Sorry, lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And you have to have both parts of that equation. In other words, what does it mean to be righteous? It means to be beautiful in God's sight because he sees you as somebody who's done everything that he required and you did it from the heart and you really meant it. You weren't just going through the motions. That's what it means to be righteous in God's sight. And you can rest when he's looked at you and said, you are righteous in my sight. And what the Bible says is that's what Jesus came to give us. Sometimes you hear this, this illustration given like, um, you know, God's got this book. And in this book, he's written down everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. And that's frightening enough. And then people say, well, but the good news of the gospel is that when you become a Christian, your book gets wiped clean. And I say, that's not good. Because I've still got to write, I've still got to have a full book. No, what the gospel is, verse 21 here, is that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. And that sin was punished on the cross. And the wrath of God was fully poured out on Jesus. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. And if you're in Christ, there is no more wrath hanging over your head if you screw up or you don't love God enough. But not only that... He gives you the righteousness of God because Jesus didn't just die, he also lived and he loved God. And God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And God wrote everything that Jesus did and thought and said in a book. And when you become a Christian, you don't get a blank book. He switches the covers and you get Jesus' book. So that you can, as the book of Hebrews says, what we looked at last semester, you can come boldly before the throne of God. You don't have to come before God sheepishly and saying, I know I didn't really love you enough this week. I know I did this and I said I wouldn't, but I did it again. And please just forgive me one more time. I promise I won't do it again. And God says, get out of my sight. I don't, you don't mean that promise. And if you expect me to forgive you based on your promise, your promise is a lie. 
But if you say, look, I have nothing to plead except the blood of Christ and the life he lived. Accept me for his sake. Then he says, come home, my child. Now here's what the Bible is saying. That changes you. When that When that becomes sweet, not just when you know it, but when that becomes sweet in your soul and it compels you, it changes the way you look at everything and it changes particularly the way you relate to other people. You no longer have to look at people for what they can add to your and try to fill up your neediness. Now you look like God has filled me and I can can look to others. I heard it said one time, you know, The love of Jesus is not to make you think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. I think we spend so much of our time and energy and anxiety wondering what God thinks about us. But the freedom that the gospel, the good news offers is that can be settled. When you put your hope in Christ, that is settled. And you don't have to worry about it or waste any energy on it again. Instead, you can now look towards others and say, who needs to know the love of God and how can I be the arms of God today for this person? It matters why you do what you do. And you know that because isn't that the problem with so much religion in the South? It's just going through the motions, but it's not from the heart. And the Bible says that's right. It's important that you love for the right reason, but the the, the reason can never change until the love of God has become beautiful and sweet to you. That's what the gospel driving relationships is all about. Let me pray, and then we will, uh, I'll have a minute or two for some questions. Lord, we do thank you that we have a love that's this big. And we pray, Lord, that, that if it's not real, and sweet to our taste tonight that you would send your spirit to bring life into our hearts where there's deadness, to bring hope where there's fear. Oh, may you help us to trust, to believe that you're that good and that your love is that good. We pray that you'd begin to do that healing work in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thoughts? Questions? We've got a, a minute or two. Try and, we're trying to do this. We're trying to have a new policy where we just have a little, little time for some thoughts or responses or quali- you know, clarification, any of that. Yeah, Logan. Right. Yeah, what do you do when the gospel stops being sweet to you? Um, I think one of the great um, prayers in the Bible is this guy who cries out to Jesus at one point, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. If you're bothered that the gospel no longer takes sweet to you, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Don't stop there. Cry out to God. Do anything you can to get the truth of the sweetness of the gospel on your heart. You may... um, need to go to your friends and humble yourself and say, I know you think I'm a leader in RUF, but the gospel is not tasting sweet to me. I'm living like an insane person today. I'm, I'm living like God's love is based on what I do, and I know that I'm not doing the right things, and I need to be reminded of what's true today. I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me. Um, 
there are times, I think, when God, when God does remove that sort of visible or tangible sense of his love. The Psalms talk about this to draw us to a deeper level of trust. So sometimes it can be helpful to have kind of spiritual counselor from somebody who's older and wiser maybe to help you. Um, I think, you know, one of the Puritans used to say that your emotions are not the compass that Christ sails by. In other words, you know, there's a great verse in 1 John chapter 4 where it says that so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And, and sometimes that, that's very different than saying that we rely on the love we have for God. You know? Or the way I'll put it this way is, you know, the quickest way to fall out of love with somebody is to have endless DTR talks. If you're constantly talking about your relationship instead of looking at the other person, you quickly will fall out of love with the other person. Yeah? And so sometimes that can happen. Like, you know, the gospel's not sweet to us because we're thinking about our relationship more than we're thinking about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So, now here's the thing. Like, in the Reformed tradition, which is sort of the, the, kind of the segment of the Christian church that RUF is connected with, I guess, um, we talk about the means of grace more than we talk about spiritual disciplines. And that's important because you need to understand God is not a giant vending machine. So there's not a quick, easy answer like, oh, well, all you got to do is read the Bible more, Logan. Um, and you got to pray, and you got to make sure you go to church, and you should do some good stuff too. All that will help. No, that's no guarantee. But generally, you will find God through the Word, Scripture, prayer, fellowship. So you should be involved in those things, but you should also um, cry out that He would help you and reach you and not give up. There is that great story about Jacob wrestling with the angel and how he won't let him go until he gets a blessing. But you remember how he gets the blessing, but he also gets his hip put out of joint and he walks with a limp the rest of his life? Like, that's the mark of people that have, have met with God. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot to be said there. But ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is you're relating to a person and not a vending machine. So there's not an automatic, but there is general path of the way you pursue but ultimately, I would say, well, th th here's the thing. It's so important for you to know that even when you're not tasting the sweetness, it's still sweet. Right? Um, it's like my friend, um, I have this friend, Scott Rowley. He had a guy come into him and say, you know, I, I want to be a Christian, but I don't like all this stuff about having to tell people about Jesus. Like, I, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. And he, he told the guy, he said, you know, you don't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love you. And the guy left, and a few weeks later, another friend of theirs said, what'd you tell that guy? And my friend Scott's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, ever since he met with you, he's been telling everybody he knows about Jesus. And so Scott called the guy back in to his, to his office and said, okay, what, what happened? He goes, dude, when you told me that I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love me, like I had to tell everybody. Yeah. So there's something about, do you see how the motivation changed? Because the cloud really hanging over him was the idea that God's this cruel taskmaster, and unless I do just all the right things that I don't want to do, he's never going to love me. Like, that means even if you do those things, you're still like this slave-master relationship rather than a father and his child. So sometimes it's important to remember that your feelings are not ultimate. There is a place in the Bible in 1 John where it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And one of the most important things to learn if you're growing as a Christian is that the Bible can trump your heart. 
Now that's about as countercultural as you can get. Um, but we'll, we'll take more of that. <laughs>